Equinox Central on the road. Satyar Shaw with Vic Nazar. And as always, we're coming to you from the Kintech studio, this time live on location at the Abbotsford Center. A lot to get to in the show today. And as always, get in touch with us on our Dunbar Lumber text inbox, 650-650. Kevin Woodley's going to join us coming up next segment. We'll discuss where the Canucks are at with their goaltending heading into the season. And we'll get to everything else when it comes to the start of the season and Kevin Woodley breaking things down and Bick when it comes day. on game day no less yeah. exactly now when it comes to where the Canucks are at with their overall system I think one thing we saw over the past I'd say a year and a half since management's come in is trying to restock the the cupboards a little bit not only in with some you know the draft picks obviously have been more mid round, late round picks instead of the, the high round picks. But it's been a lot of college free agents that have been signed. There have been some WHL free agents, case in point, Archdeep Baines, for instance. So they've added a number of players to their system essentially. But I kind of wanted to take take stock of not just what they've done since in the draft with Tom Willander and LeCaramacchi, but more so as what do they currently have in Abbotsford, Vic, and what can actually help them this season. And I would say I'm a bit more enamored with, with what we might see from the forwards as opposed to the defensemen, given how training camp has gone with players failing to grab those open spots on the back end. Yeah, the the, the forward group uh, to me is is interesting. Obviously, a full season of someone like Akuratu, who doesn't have to come in mid-season, learn everything, uh, learn his teammates. Now he gets the full summer, uh, and he goes through training camp, and and someone like that is obviously very exciting. Someone that in his draft year, you know, was thought of very highly. Obviously, slid, but I uh, was the marquee person uh, from the Bo Horvat trade, but you mentioned Archie Baines, what progress does he make? And also like Linus Carlson, who you know I thought was okay. Um, not spectacular, but I didn't really notice him for negatives either. So, you know, an opportunity for him this season as well, uh, to continue his growth. But that that group of players like I'm I'm intrigued to watch them tonight. Yeah, I, so am I. I mean, I'm I'm intrigued to see kind of where a lot of these guys are at. And I think the player that we're kind of watching in terms of where do they end up this upcoming season is Vasily Putkolzin. And I think the organization has done a good job in terms of their development because we're now looking at guys like Archie Baines who pay, played a full year in the AHL, took some steps in the right direction. Even Danila Klimovich took a step in the right direction. Linus Carlson, his rookie season was was successful, for instance. So a number of these guys that came over took a bit of a step. The question I have now is, can you turn some of your prospects who showed already some NHL-caliber potential, like Vasily Putkolzin a couple years ago now, believe it or not? Niels Hoaglander was here for a spell and looks like he's cemented his spot to start the season at the very least with the Canuck squad. Are they able to not only bring some guys along, but help per propel a player like Vasily Putkolzin, for instance, whose development this year is going to be absolutely critical? I think this is the year you have to figure out what you truly have in him and how you get him back on track in Abbotsford, I think is going to not only be important for him, but also a chance for us to get a sense of what can these guys truly do when it comes to players that need to be propelled another level. Yeah, and it was so important too in like an age range that they had to address. Yeah. And so some of these players are at critical moments in their development. Obviously, like a 22-year-old Vasily put coals in. 23-year-old Carlson. McDonough's at 23. Even someone like Tristan Nielsen's at 23. Yeah. So th these guys are a very critical state, and they've been with the organization now a year, a couple of years. And, you know, the, the way they've targeted certain people, like an R.S.D. Baines or a Hiroshi even, like whoever it is that they've gone in, gone after to, to bring into the organization, because the, the previous regime and just the Canucks in general have struggled at mid-range, long-development prospects yeah 
and either they've been playing overseas, they they've never really shown that they can play at the pro level. It, all these opportunities just kind of fell by the wayside. And when you start looking at it, it's like, hey, you start going through the drafts in 2018 and uh, 2016, you're missing a second and a fourth round pick, mm-hmm. missing a second rounder in 2015, and suddenly that, that next wave isn't there. And even if you accelerate it to like a 2020 with no first and, uh, first and second and no first and third in 2021, okay, well, where's that next wave of talent supposed to be coming from? And that's why it was so interesting last season to have such an emphasis on the college free agents. Yeah. And as soon as they've arrived, they've prioritized a college and undrafted or uh, college uh, free agents and European free agents to see them come in at that age profile to fill in just the gap that was necessarily yeah. that was absolutely necessary for this team to solve. And so uh, that group, like how it, like if Klimovich doesn't pan out, he's twenty. Like, where's that next wave supposed to come from? Mm-hmm. And there, it, it's a huge focus right now that it's like a McDonough starts to have some success, even at least have some success here. They're able to play here. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. I mean, can you can you play here and, and be an everyday player at the very least? Can And then take a step from that point on, yeah. you know? And But but so, like they've barely had guys that have stuck around in the AHL. Well, yeah, I mean, that's the thing. No, I, I completely agree with you. Like has organizational depth. They're constantly looking for that. Let alone, hey, can it be a top six forward for the, the big club? Yeah. Can, cycled through AHLers. Well, yeah. Can we... Can we limit the number of uh, AHL contracts only mm. we need on this team to be successful because we can rely on the prospects in the organization and there are a couple of guys right like you know Josh Bloom this season who in training camp showed a lot of gumption and, and has some speed and speed and physicality to his game we'll see how he develops and projects this upcoming season but what is also interesting is it seems like guys who have come in new to the organization are already lapping some of the prospects who have been here previously sure. you know we mentioned Aiden McDonough who we'll see how he fits in this year but it wouldn't shock me if he already he gets to a point midway through the season. We're viewing him as a better call-up option than a Klimovich, than a Linus Carlson, for instance. You know, and these are guys who just joined the organization, right? And that's, I'd say even on the back end, where that's been most pronounced, is a guy like Jack Rathbone, who a few years ago was the team's top defensive prospect. To now, I mean, where is he in the on the pecking order? I mean, Hirose, who they said needs to be uh, get a bit you know, stronger and into be- better shape, they're very high on him still. I'd say by the end of the season, you still view him as being higher in the pecking order. Um, oh, Cole, I, I, Cole I think, McWard, for instance, you're seeing, who yeah. we'll see ultimately if he starts with Vancouver, but I still think we see him in Abbotsford a lot. I mean, those two guys just joined the organization, and they're kind of one-two with a bullet now outside of guys who are not in the NHL. I, I think as soon as last season ended, we could credibly look at and say Keita Hirose was higher on the depth chart than Jack Rathbone. Now, the opportunity to go compete moving forward, and maybe you can separate yourself, but even at the end of last year, who had more success? Even in a handful of games, we're talking about Hirose, but who who had more success at the NHL level, Rathbone or Keita Hirose? It, it, it's obvious for me. And then, you know, there was a chance there if when you're the young emerging player, can you jump someone that's got NHL games, like a Matt Irwin or a Christian Wolanin? None of them did. Yeah. And so suddenly the the placeholder didn't get replaced. Yeah. And Matt Irwin's probably sitting there like, okay, I, I got a shot to play regular minutes here. Christian Wolanin maybe still got a chance to, to, to be a number eight. You wanted one of those guys to win the battle. We spent so much time focusing on Hoaglander put Coles in. None of those guys on the back end did it. Uh, and, and now in the front end, uh, we're, we're kind of left with like, all right, it's between Joshua and Hoaglander all of a sudden. 
Oh, yeah. And, you know, I, I'd say even Dakota Joshua, with how this year goes, is he even going to go into being with the organization next season? So how big of a part of the future is he even going, going to be? So how many more spots do you have to fill up as time goes on? I think R.C. Baines, he does project as perhaps being the type of bottom six guy with some speed, some physicality, good on the forecheck, good along the boards. He might be able to fill that type of a need, even though he doesn't have the same size, speed, and physicality combo, perhaps, that a Dakota Joshua has. And like I mentioned before, Josh Bloom, is he going to be yeah. the organizational version of you, version of you bringing somebody up that can provide that type of player in your bottom six? And those are the guys we're looking at. I'm not sure they're going to be guys that you rely on to play games for you this year, necessarily, as, as time goes on. But it's going to be interesting for us to kind of chart their progress and see how much are you going to be able to be an answer as time goes on? Because I think this year, too, Bic, as much as we sit here and talk about uh, this team's going to be competitive, hopefully, and fight for a playoff spot, they still have to do more to become a Stanley Cup contender. Oh, and yeah. they still have to fill more spots in terms of stabil- uh, really stabilizing what they have as a core here. They need somebody to be that third-line center. They need some more physical players in the bottom six. They need another defenseman to kind of develop. And you want to see signs that through the course of the season, you might have some internal answers to two or three of those spots. And I think if you have that, I think you get to a spot next season where you don't have to go outside of your organization as much to look for things, and then you can be more strategic and perhaps adding a more impact player via free agency or a trade because you're filling your depth spots with players on cheap contracts that can give you something instead of going to spending $2 million on a on a bottom six player or spending extra like $3 million on a on a third-pair defenseman. Especially when that's your MO of, yeah. hey, when we get these guys into our environment... Look at the success we've had at Pittsburgh. And we've all sat here and said, hey, Wilkes-Barre Scranton, they, they had tons of success. They find guys, and a Brian Rust goes into the roster, a yeah. Jake Gensel. They, they mold and they craft these guys. If that's your MO and that's what it's being labeled as, then you have to have success at the AHL level. I'm more concerned about the individual player success of how they grow and integrate into your main team than I am the overall team success, although I want to see a ton of success for the Abbotsford Canucks. But as far as how it translates to the pro level, if that is your calling card, you have to then succeed at it. And right now, like early returns over the course of uh, 18 months, I'd say, yeah, there's been enough progress here. Even if you want to say someone that they didn't, they kind of inherited, but clearly there's a... Uh, an affinity from Rutherford and Tockett to someone like Phil DiGiuseppe. Like, the, like there's a history between Jim Rutherford and Phil DiGiuseppe drafting him in the second round yeah. in Carolina. So it, it wasn't a huge recruitment process with that one, but they've made that one work, saying, hey, this is someone that can go up the roster. Now there's an example for an R.C. Baines, an yes. Aiden McDonough, a Josh Bloom, a Tristan Nielsen, a Danila Klimovich to say, hey, like they, they will give you a chance. They will move you up the roster. And they've crafted a role for that guy, and he's he's perfected it. Again, we're not talking about someone that's going to score 40 goals, but they asked Phil, Di, Phil DiGiuseppe to win board battles, facilitate the puck in the offensive zone, make safe passes. That's exactly what he does. Yeah. And so if you're looking at this and say, hey, they've outlined details, even something like Guillaume Brisebois. Did you ever think Guillaume Brisebois, again, was going to play credible minutes in the NHL? Oh, I mean, I had pretty much put a pin in him like two years ago. Yeah. But last year, again, end of season, I know. But even when he came in, in his role, he did fine. It was fine. That's why he came into this year like, hey, is Guillaume Brisebois going to compete for a spot? So that's their calling card. They've made it work with a couple of players that they inherited. But the ones that you're bringing in, like a Baines, like a Bloom, that's the group I want to see have some success and start being the one that's pushing up the lineup and, and making difficult decisions of when they have to call these guys up. It shouldn't be an easy one guy out, okay, that guy comes in. It shouldn't be only one player. 
you should have multiple to, to, to force difficult decisions. You're hoping that out of this group of players, can one be a top four defenseman? Can you find a second slash third line center? And can you find somebody who can score on the wing? Between guys like McDonough, put Colson, obviously, who's going back down here, uh, Klimovich even, and Carlson, can you turn one of those guys into a top six forward? And perhaps put Colson still your best bet. It's just can you get him back to being that type of player potentially, right? The, the, the attribute profile for him is still, to me, like the best bet. Well, there's a reason. I mean, talent-wise, body composition-wise, yeah. traits-wise, like he's clearly one of their most he impactful players at all. At all. No, and, and even last year, he was unable to really push that pace and showcase it, right? And that kind of brings me to looking at guys on the higher end, for instance. We mentioned Hirose. We can get to him a bit more in McWard. The organizationally, I think they believe they have future top four defensemen there. So you hope, hey, one or two of those guys can be it. But Atu Ratu, to me, he's going to be a real interesting player this upcoming season. He's looked terrific in training camp, looked good in the preseason, the games he's played. And he looks like a player who can think the game. He looks like a player who has some real talent and skill. It comes down to his pace and his processing at the higher level, right? What do we want to see from Atu Ratu this year in terms of his progression where we can look at it and say, all right, this is a good step forward for him? I actually do think it comes down to a bottom line of production because if we look back and we say, and I'm not talking about like plays that come from tipped goals or something like that. But if you tell me that he's got a certain standard of baseline production at the AHL level, I'm going to make the assumption that there's comes with it a step in his game as well. How are you creating your own shot? How are you crafting uh, your opportunities a bit different? I honestly, technique-wise, physically, outside of the skating, I don't really have a lot of concerns for Ratu Ratu and even the, the processing. It was there last year in a couple of games that we saw. It just, you, you saw he's a step late. Yeah. But it's not a step late of... Oh, should I do this? Should I not? Like, he commits to his decisions. It's just, I need to be more explosive. I just need to be a bit more powerful when a player is on my hip or on my back. How do I protect the puck? It just, but, but that stuff, you can tell he knows how to do it all. It's just a, a, a question of skating. So if he starts putting up uh, a sizable point production season, that to me is where I, I look at it and I say, okay, like, there's someone that's creating now on his own and not reliant on others to make plays for him. If that starts to come, that's really intriguing for Ratu Ratu. Well, he checks a lot of boxes in terms of what the organization is looking for from centers particularly. Like, for a young player who's good in the face-off circle, he's smart defensively, good along the walls, right? He, he's a good playmaker, knows which lanes to take, which angles to take, he understands the game defensively. I think he hits a baseline. It's just a matter of, for me, you mentioned the raw point totals. Like, I, I want to see if you can you can get more out of this guy. Like, can he perhaps be a second-line center for you? And I'm not saying we should put that as the expectation, but I think when you acquire a player in the Bull Horvat trade, you get a first-round pick, which is a good pick. You get a prospect, which was a top prospect in the organization. I don't think you settle for he'll be a third-liner. Sure, maybe if that's what he is, that's what he is. But is there a pathway for him to be more than that? And I think if we're looking at how can this organization take that leap, and become a contender while you still have Pedersen, you still have Hughes and these guys. And it's, that's one of the things that kind of has to happen here. Well, the, whether it's Raw 2 or somebody else, it's not just being good enough to play games, it's to become an impact yeah. player. That's why I'm more focused on the production, because we yeah. can sit here and say, if he works on the skating, he's always going to be a credible third liner. Well, I don't want that. I, I think he, I think he'll be that. And paid for by... But I, I want more. I'm selfish that way, Sam. Yeah. I, I, I want two gifts under the tree. Yes. I want his speed and the production. Because what a, what a great solution it would be if either he's a credible second line center, and now, hey, in the back end of this JT Miller contract, we're all focused on like, can he play in center long term? He can go to the wing next to Atu Ratu with a defensively sound center. Or JT Miller thrives at center for years, and now you have a 
functional, strong third-line center. I don't just want, like, a Teddy Bluger replacement down the road. Who I'm a big fan of Teddy Bluger's defensive game, but I don't want to be sitting here and saying, like, oh, he does just enough defensively to make up for the offensive uh, deficiencies. You want someone that can drive a line and be a threat that every time a coach on the other side is thinking about a seven-game series, like, I, I, I don't know what line to, to stay away from. Pedersen, Miller, or Ratu. That's what you want. You want to have a guy who's kind of flirting with being a second line center. Yeah. If you're not going to be a third line, can you be a tweener between second and a third? And that's kind of what you're looking for at the very least. I mean, the ideal situation to what you mentioned is, can you get one of those guys to go into your top six? And that's why I view it as impact forward this team needs. Preferably long-term, to your point, because of JT, you'd like to move him to the wing at some point if you could and get a center. But I think you have time to get there, but can get another impact guy. Mm -hmm. And whether that's a player that shifts JT to the wing or a player who can jump into the wing and provide something. And the guy with the highest upside to be a winger to score is like Mackey, who, mm -hmm. hey, thankfully is having a great start to his SHL, SHL campaign. But that's still a ways off in terms of when he's going to come over to North America and then when he's going to be able to make an impact, if at all, at the National Hockey League. And that's still, you know, a bit of a ways away. And I think looking at the players currently now, Ratu is your best bet at the Abbotsford level to become that type of player up front. And especially when you're mentioning someone like the Karamaki. Like, you're talking best-case scenario. Uh, I'm talking about impact in the top six, okay? 2026? Yeah, I think that's being... that's being, I mean, he probably needs one year in the AHL or even come and play. He's not going to come into the NHL right away and score 25-30 goals. Yeah, that's probably I, not I'm talking happen. about, like, hey, the, our expectations for Brock Besser right now. Imagine placing those on... Uh, Lekaramaki. You're two years away from that. Yeah, I, I think at least. at least. And that's being, I think that expedited would like be we're sitting here, I, We want 60 points out of Brock Besser. Yeah. That's what fans are demanding. Yeah. You're making six plus, and 60 is probably light, but we want, we want to see 60 points, consistent overall play, both defensively and uh, goal scoring. So a, a good, like, rookie year for. Lekaramaki for me would be like 35, 40 points. That'd yeah. be unreal. That would be great. And that's still a couple years away. And yeah. then we'll see ultimately how that kind of locks in. And we mentioned the defense. I mean, we mentioned the forwards a little bit here. But I'd say the guy that people are most excited about as fans is probably Artur Silovs in that. And, I mean, he was playing so well last year. And even with the cup of coffee he had with the Canucks, you looked at it and said, is there a way maybe he can be the backup? Or how many games can you get him up here for? And considering they went and got Casey the Smith and he's like entrenched as the backup, that's probably not going to be a thing. But I do think in terms of what is Seelovs going to be and what does it provide for your organization in a year or so? And again, like your hope is he can be a starting caliber goaltender. But even if he's a really good backup goaltender, that's still a step forward. But again, where is your organization going to get those next level performers from? And is Seelovs one of your better bets to get there? Yeah, you know, for a sixth-round pick, if you turn around and say, hey, we got a credible backup, that's a win as yes. a draft pick, right? Uh, but I think everyone's kind of fascinated and, and uh, it is looking at the, the tantalizing uh, proposition of this guy maybe being more. We've seen the success he's had internationally, obviously. Absolute Canucks fans have certainly got their chance to watch him last season. And, like, I, I think there's a lot of potential here. Right now, he's pr your best and I, I feel like saying, like, maybe your only true succession plan to Thatcher Demko, if a couple of years down the line you want to start building your team around the idea of Seelovs is going to be the guy. Nothing against, um, like, like, a Ty Young or Koskinvuau or something like that, but it just feels like longer down the road. 
Um, Seelovs is the only one that looks like, hey, this the, the, this could be an obvious succession plan. And if if it works, man, that, that presents so many team building opportunities when you're yeah. limiting the cost on your goaltending. Uh, like that's always how some teams have had success here recently. That that to me is the intriguing one. Uh, now the, the the Casey to Smith ad like buys him another year, right? And just take your time and see yeah. where where that kind of goes. And you well, know, we came like until De Smith was acquired. I think there was a, a hope from some fans that, like, hey, maybe 12 games for Seelovs in the NHL level. Yeah. Now I'm like, unless somebody gets three. injured. Like, yeah. I'm like three tops right now. Like, yeah, I mean, maybe there's a scenario where you want to give uh, Demko a couple nights off. You call up Seelovs. He takes a night sure. off as the backup and perhaps even starts one of those games. It gives you some options. But beyond that, even, one of the things that I'm looking at as well, and this is kind of becoming getting more um, – I'd say more utilitarian in terms of viewing these guys and viewing them as assets because that's part of it too. How many guys can you turn into assets for you? Because as much as we love prospects, mm-hmm. most of them don't pan out, man. Like, for instance, we were talking about this you know, off-air the other day, but look at the LA Kings. LA Kings went from a team, and we talked to Dan about this yesterday a little bit, but LA, the LA Kings went from a, from a team with the deepest, biggest prospect pool. They had goalies, right-side defensemen, centers, wingers, physical defensemen, goalies. They had everything you wanted in their prospect pool. Bit by bit, they trade a couple. Brock Faber gets traded, for instance. They move a couple other guys, Helger Grons, and some other players they've moved in trades. They move some draft picks instead of replenishing the system. And what's happened now is time's gone on. Jared Anderson Dolan's gone from being an asset to becoming, you know, a depth piece. Fajimo is a guy who had upside. He got claimed off waivers. Bjorn Foot went from being a player who that was viewed as maybe a top four defenseman, a guy that may not make a team and might be on waivers as well, right? And Byfield's still trying to figure things out. Brand Clark has some upside. Alex Turcott. His, his asset is kind of diminishing here, too. So Kaliev. Kaliev went from maybe he's a god, maybe he's just kind of another player here. And still a couple guys will turn out, and they'll be, it'll be okay to some extent. But you see how quickly the deepest, best prospect pool got dwindled down and how many are now left, right? So part of it to me is can you get these some of these guys to a level where at the very least they're trade assets for you? I know fans are probably like screaming in their cars right now saying, we can't trade any more draft picks or prospects. Most of these guys won't turn out. Trade some that you don't quite believe in but have value to get something and then hope you turn a couple of guys out. But you need to get your asset value up high, too, that what if six months from now, a year from now, that top four defenseman is available, that center is available, that winger is available, and now you have an extra draft pick, now you have a few prospects. Like, where is that going to come from? Because I think part of taking that next step outside of development is what other trades can you make? When you hold on to the assets for too long, again, I'm just using this as an example. I don't mean that they should have moved them. But what would the situation have been like last year had they moved Jack Rathbone to where they are now? Right. Yeah, it went from guy being an asset to now a guy nobody picks off waivers. We're talking about someone that could have been used in a Marino trade. Right. Sorry, I know Reach is here. Marino. <laughs> Marino. A, a, a John Marino trade to now you, you kind of had to sweat it to say, hey, is he going to get claimed on waivers? That's in a span of about 400 days. Where were we last year with Nils Hoaglander? Where are we right now with, with Vasily Podkolzin? You keep asking yourself these questions. It, it's constantly relying on prospects. And look, I, I know you have to build the system and all that sort of stuff. But but when, when you tell yourself that, hey, we're going to rely on everything uh, on a system that works about 35 to 40% of the time, if you're lucky, th- it's fraught with peril. Yeah. If you can cash in for some certainty, and I mean like proper certainty, not like go get Brandon Sutter type deals. The Kings use prospects to go get a Kevin Fiala type player. That's what I'm talking about. 
if you can catch in early on some guys, you're like, hey, I'm not sure we really want to go down the road of long-term development with this player. Yeah. You have to explore that constantly. It's, it's, it's just currency. I know you've put your emotional well-being and, and your emotional thoughts and like, hey, Jack Rathbone's going to be this and Nils Hoagland is going to be this. The overwhelming data for every prospect suggests they're going to be fourth liners, third yeah. liners, and they're not going to be impact. Like every draft, we're talking about 35, 40 guys out of 270 picks. Yeah. You're lucky to get 15 quality NHLers, well, let alone uh, regular NHLers. Or it's more about like 35 to 40 players. And and for all the talk about hitting big outside the first round, yeah, it can happen. But it's just go through every draft and outside the second round, it's like a handful of players that turn out. It's mostly in that top two round, the top round, and everything else kind of. There's very few and far between in terms of finding some value players. But that's kind of the state of where the Vancouver Canucks are at with their prospects, especially with the Abbotsford Canucks. And when it comes to Abbotsford, obviously the Canucks are playing their preseason game here in Abbotsford. You're going to have a bunch of Abbotsford players. Archer Silov's most likely going to be in that. We'll see if Casey DeSmith gets to start. But obviously, having Aturatu, Max Sasson is another guy we didn't mention that has shown some promise. And we'll see the battle on the blue line. And we'll get to that and more. But we are going to have our friend Kevin Woodley joining us next. Now, before we get to all that, tune into the Sportsnet Radio Friday Soccer Report brought to you by Casiero del Diablo Wines and the Way to Be a Legend Contest. The chance to win a once-in-a-lifetime trip to England for the ultimate Manchester United experience. Pick, are you listening? Including a chance to play a football game at Old Trafford where Manchester United legends will make an appearance. Dude, believe this. I mean, you're a man, man you find. No purchase necessary. Conditions apply. Must be legal drinking age. Casiero del Diablo. Available at BC Liquor. Please enjoy responsibly. Enter in-store or visit CasieroManchester.com. Bick, you can't you can't jump into this, but you got to have your friends jumping in on this contest. You you're just call this the uh, Bick Nazar Dream Contest here. You've been to Old Trafford, though, right? Yeah, I've been on the pitch. I uh, didn't play, but uh, honestly, as someone that's been there, uh, magnificent uh, facility. And I know there's a lot of talk about it right now, but just it, being on the the pitch there. It is. They call it the theater, the theater of dreams, and it's full value of uh, what that experience is like. Well, if you haven't entered, please do. Enter in-store or visit CasieroManchester.com. All right, it is Canucks Central live on location. Satin Bick, Kevin Woodley's next right here on Sportsnet 650. The most opinionated Canucks show out there. Canucks Talk with Jamie Dodd and Thomas Grants. Be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Back in on Canuck Central, coming to you live from the Kintech studio is Satyar Shaw with Bick Nazar. And as always, get your thoughts into our Dunbar Lumber text inbox. Dunbar Lumber with three stores to serve you in Ladner on Bridge Street, Dunbar Lumber Express at Ladner Center, or our beauties in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. It's Satin Bick. We are going to be joined by Kevin Woodley in Gold Magazine and NHL.com coming up in just a moment. We are at the Abbotsford Center here and getting set for Canucks and Seattle Kraken. Like Dan likes to say, who's doing color alongside Brandon Bastler for the game, the penultimate preseason yeah. game. So that's what's coming up here tonight. They're right. having a debate today, or not a debate, a discussion on Twitter of their like favorite words, and Bastler said penultimate. Penultimate. Uh, among his. All right, let's bring in Kevin Woodley into the discussion. Kevin, do you have a favorite word you'd like to throw out there as Ooh. a phrase? Like, do you have one, like a favorite goal? Shut out. Oh, yeah, that's a good one. You're not allowed to say that, Vic. <laughs> I do it all the time. I don't care. 
Yeah, I wouldn't know what one of those is, to be honest with you. I'm rocking <laughs> gold against about seven right now in my beer league. So what the hell, I guess I could, maybe I should say it more. It might happen. I, yeah, you got me on the spot there. I, I, it's definitely, all I can tell you is it's not penultimate. That's, that's uh, 100% not the, uh, not the word. Yeah, Steve's a good one. Steve is my favorite word, I think. This is a good one. Like the Jays did not stave off elimination today. Exactly. Yeah, I really years. enjoyed the. Uh, I really enjoyed the Jays hype uh, uh, intro. You know, coming out of coming out of the break there, the uh, the commercial. So <laughs> did yeah. we play? <laughs> the uh, the Seattle Mariners fan in me feels a little vindicated today. Although the reality is, I was kind of like, ah, the Jays probably have a better chance of maybe doing something in the playoffs. And I guess they both just suck. Well, the Mariners have won more playoff games than the Jays the last two years. There you go. So, you know, there is that. There is that. Hey, who more recently won a game? Was it the Mariners or the Jays? It was the Mariners. They won yeah. the last game. Yeah, because Jays <laughs> lost the last two. They Jeez. lost four in a row. All right. All right. Enough baseball. Enough baseball talk. Um, yeah, for, I need a traffic report, boy. How, how busy is it out there? Because I haven't quite left yet. Oh, you're. Oof. I don't. I don't know. Uh, so, if you're heading to Abbotsford, there was an accident when we were heading over. We left at like I left at like two p.m. We got here just before four, and heading westbound, it was a horrible accident. I don't yeah, know but you idiots like are on number one, right? Yeah. 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 No, yeah. I live in White Rock, man. It's a straight shot out from. Uh, oh. You know, we just oh, take okay. the back road. I think you should be okay. You should probably leave after this hit then. Then you should be fine. Huh. We'll delay Perfect. puck drop if you're late. <laughs> yeah. We'll just scream at them to wait a few minutes. Nothing starts without me. Just remember. Yeah. That. yeah. We know that. We know that's true. Uh, you know, so let's start with the goaltending here for where, where this Canucks team kind of finds itself and what we've seen from Casey the Smith so far. We haven't seen a ton from him. How long is it going to take us to get a true sense of what Casey the Smith has to offer as a netminder in Vancouver? Do we need a couple of regular season games to get an idea? Because he looked fine in what we saw in the preseason so far. Yeah, I went to judge one way or the other based on, on the preseason. If it had gone poorly or, or well, um, to be honest, judge more from a conversation I had with him at the rink the other day. Just a nice little one-on-one chat. No, you know, no tape recorder out. Sort of how's it going with Ian Clark? How's he enjoying that experience? Some of the adjustments that he's been able to make. Some of the adjustments that are going to be a work in progress. You know, potentially for weeks and months here because they're, you know, he didn't get to come in like Colin Delia and Spencer Martin have in the past couple of years in August and start to put the changes into his game that early. And so, yeah, it sounds like there is a little more patience a little more willingness from Ian Clark to you know maybe let him do it his way uh some in some cases much like we saw with Yaroslav Halak you've been around a long time if this works for you we're okay with it uh in other cases just sort of hey like this is how we play on our posts uh we're going to need you to make an adjustment but understanding it's not going to happen overnight and you know as Casey said uh to me the other day the reality of making changes like that in game is you've got to rep it out and practice as much as you can to the point where it becomes instinctual in a game. And you have to sort of live with those moments where maybe you get caught doing it the other way because the instincts aren't there yet. Because the last thing that you can do out there is a goaltender. And I love this. I'd love to throw around this old Top Gun quote, but if you think out there, you're dead, right? You just can't. You can't be trying to think about what you're doing. It has to be becoming natural out there because the game's way too fast for you to be trying sort of actively like, okay, the puck's here. I need to do it this way instead of how I used to do it. And so he's not there yet with all the changes, but he seems real comfortable with the ones he has made and with his game right now. And so regardless of what the outcome looks like tonight, the process, you know, he trusts it and the way it's moving forward. I mean, and those are all positives. And, you know, I, 
I think it was a couple of weeks since I've been on with you guys, but we talked about, you know, I had goalie coaches that have worked with him in the past that, you know, threw up some caution flags about what this relationship might be like, just because we know what Ian teaches and prefers and, and some of what they'd seen of Casey's preferences in terms of managing rush and things like that. And the other, the flip side of that though, was Casey really is a student of the position. I remember talking with him for like an hour after a penguin skate last year and just, you know, geeking out on details like the struggles he had with skate pitch after having to, to change from an older model to a newer model and, and how that threw everything off biomechanically. And so anytime you've got a guy who's that much a student of the position, um, it's usually a good fit with a guy like Ian Clark because the one thing about Ian, as much as he may be adamant about certain things, it's never do it because I say so. It's always well explained. This is why we do it this way. Here are the, the technical advantages. Here are the space and time advantages you get if you do it this way. And so with a guy like DeSmith, I'm not surprised, despite some reservations from, from others that, that know both, um, to hear that things are going well in that relationship early on. You referenced a name I was going to ask you about in Halak and, and the, the differing styles between the, the coaching philosophy and how he played. And if I remember correctly, like there was a uh, pairing between Hopi and the coaching staff as how they wanted to see it played and how he kind of tracks the game. If, if I was to create the spectrum of Hopi to Halak, where exactly does DeSmith fall in that? Um, see, I, I don't know that Like the difference with Braden was there was a recognition on Brayton's part that there were things, some things he did that needed to change. Okay. And so okay. he was more on board with making some, you know, some of those changes than even, you know, whereas Yara Hall, because, because that was supposed to be a multi-year partnership, right? Right. And, you know, just obviously didn't go that way with the buyout, but that was supposed to be a multi-year process. And with Halak, you know, as the veteran he was, and he had had recent success, it was less about making changes and more about just, listen, like how you do it works because you're so good at reading the game. And, and so we're not going to change a whole bunch here. Maybe we can find little things that'll improve, but we're not going to make wholesale changes. And that's, I, putting Casey on a scale, that's interesting because I think there are probably less changes to be made mm-hmm. than Yarrow. And yet this could be a very short term thing. So I, I don't know if that there's as, as much of a, a push to make changes as there was with the Braden Holtby. So probably somewhere in the middle. And I think, you know, in an ideal world, it's a conversation back and forth that both parties are a part of, as opposed to this is what we're doing. You better do it this way. And it sounds very much like that's what's happened here. Yeah, no, I mean, it certainly does seem that way. And as far as what the organization looks now, goaltending-wise, with Spencer Martin getting claimed off waivers, what do you make of what that does for the abstract Canucks? Sila, as we know, is going to be you know the unquestioned number one, but they have Sawchenko, who they signed to a contract. Tolapilos looked pretty good already as well in terms of where he's at with his game. How do you see things shaking out at the abstract level now that Spencer Martin is no longer with the organization? You know, and I actually wish I'd had some conversations with people about how they foresee it. My guess would be that Tolapilo stays there as a three for a little while. Um, I haven't seen the timelines on when the coast has their, um, you know, training camp and what that looks like. But again, we talk about that process that other goalies have gone through with making the changes. And I would imagine that Tolapilo will have a little more time in the American League to work with Marco Terranius more hand-in-hand than he would get to in the ECHL. Even if he's not playing, get that opportunity to rep out 
you know, these differences and get comfortable with them rather than, you know, getting him, if he is the guy that goes to the ECHL, getting, getting him out right away. So um, it's kind of a wait and see. It might depend on how each of them plays, how each of them reacts to the changes. And to be honest, I haven't had a chance to catch, catch up with Zach, who's a guy that, you know, I've known for a little while um, through training camp to get a feel for where he thinks he's headed. At the end of the day, um, the depth chart takes a hit as much as everyone's like, they got to get rid of a goalie. Um, you know, there, Spencer Martin is, there was, despite what happened last year, there was still upside there. And there are other teams that believe there's, there's an NHL backup there as well. So um, losing that in the case of injuries leaves you kind of where we were in the summer, right? Like you're kind of right back to that spot. This is an organization that went four deep last year. Mm-hmm. Are you comfortable if they have to go four deep this year? And I'm not sure that that comfort level as it is as high now as it was before Spencer Martin got claimed. So again, it's, is it a small risk? Yeah, absolutely. It, it, it chances of it coming back to haunt them is seems slim. And yet we've seen several teams, including Vancouver go four deep in their season, mm-hmm. um, you know, and need starts from all four and you're less secure. There is a risk if they were to do that this year, how much, you know, how much do you see Zach Sutton being ready to play in the National Hockey League if needed? You know, before we wrap things up on the Canucks and net minding, uh, let, let's hit something on Thatcher Demko here. And one of the things that we heard from Demko uh, at training camp was that he made some changes, you know, biomechanical changes a little, little bit. He worked on his game a lot and he tried to get to the level that he's, you know, get back to that level and stay healthy through the course of the season. When you make those types of changes, the biomechanical ones, how important does the preseason become? And does it kind of show why he he really wants to have three starts? I think a lot of guys over the years that I've talked to like the idea of three starts, even if you don't go coast to coast in the first one, they want sort of three times to go through the process and feel good. Um, So I don't know if that has, you know, I don't know if that's any different, whether he's making changes or not. The truth is I don't know that the preseason matters as much in terms of him, him being comfortable with those changes because the reality is they weren't initiated in the summer. This all started while he was hurt last year, right? He brought in a new person to work with him in terms of how he trains, um, how he moves, how he prepares to move off the ice and how that translates on the ice. He did that while he was injured last year and began that process last year. And that's why I stress at a time when everyone else was saying, just shut him down for the season, the importance of him getting back into game action. Does it mean you needed to play him as much as you did? Hey, that's a different argument. But it was important for him to feel good about those changes late last season so that he he could feel confident and comfortable continuing to build on them in the summer. And that's this now is just an extension of that process. So, you know, to be, to be perfectly frank, I I don't know that preseason really mattered because he, you know, other than an opportunity to build confidence uh, in, in his overall game and how he feels, because I think in terms of being comfortable with the changes he made in training and preparation, you know, he was already there. That was already done. Those changes were in place when he came back from the injury last year, and the faith in them was already well established by how well he played down the stretch. Uh, we're going to see the Seattle Kraken tonight and just what their goaltending looks like uh, heading into the season. You know, Philip Grubauer's interesting because it can run hot and it can run cold. Uh, just, you know, the. And they're they're not going to have the stability of Martin Jones uh, this year. Uh, so their their situation in goal, it feels like they're they could be a volatile team based on what they get in net throughout the course of this year. 
You know, Philip Grubauer's numbers, his adjusted numbers last year, it's funny because at the beginning of the season, they were actually exceptional. He just had one of the lowest expected save percentages in the league. And to the point where you wondered if there was something to that, uh, because of the way his first season in Seattle went, was his team not confident in front of him? Um, were guys trying to do too much when he was in net? Or was it just a matter of him getting the tougher start? Because his performance through the first third of last season, despite the fact Jones was getting all the wins and getting more starts, was actually way better than the raw numbers indicated. Saw him up close and personal in the playoffs and liked where his game was at. I, I'm not really worried about Philip Grubauer. To me, their biggest question mark is behind him. Chris Dreger, obviously, we know tore the ACL, I think MCL too, in that uh, rather ugly sort of uh, gold, I think it was the gold medal game at the World Championships uh, at the end of not this past season, but the one before that. Basically, missed an entire year. So there's question marks there about his health. And then Joey Decord, if Dreger can't hold water at the NHL level if the injury and the comeback from it is too much um, you know it's going to be an opportunity for him so there are questions perhaps about the backup role with Jones departed but I actually don't stress all that much about Philip Grubauer as long as the defense remains as sort of structured and stout as it was last year Grubauer is a guy who can have success behind those kinds of teams if they start playing fire wagon hockey which i don't think anyone foresees but if they start doing that you know check back in because i don't know that philip grubauer is equipped to be behind that kind of team but you give him structure he can read off and, and play the way he plays behind without having to go outside himself or you know become an acrobat which frankly he isn't and he can give you cons- you know consistent you know above expected save percentage you know, to the tune of, you know, top 15, top 20 in the league. And I, I, so, so I worry a little less. The first year was a bit of a blip. Every other year for him has been kind of that consistent guy and seeing him get back to it last year makes me less worried about this season. One is also part of the discussion we've had about this Vancouver team, considering, you know, how good Thatcher Demko is, how big of a difference it makes if you have the type of system that doesn't allow your goaltender to stretch out too much, as long as a goalie can be successful in that type of a system. And that's kind of the perfect combo you're looking for, isn't it? To have a high-end goaltender, but have a team that's able to limit his scoring chances. Yeah, and listen, the challenges are different too, right? And there may be an adjustment period. We've talked about this in the past with Jacob Marks from going to Calgary, right? Like, when you've played behind a team that basically gives you a blindfold and a smoke for a couple of years and just said, go out there and stop bullets in your teeth, all of a sudden playing behind a team with more structure as much as in theory uh, it's easier. You're not being extended east-west as often. You're not seeing as many grade-A scoring chances as you used to night after night. The rhythm's different, and finding your game and finding your rhythm behind it when your team has more possessions, spends more time in the other end. Um, you're not as busy. That's a different animal, and it can be a bit of a challenge mentally. And I, I don't know outside of late last season that it's one that Thatcher's had to manage that often in the past. Doesn't mean he can't make an adjustment. Doesn't mean he can't make a quick adjustment. But I think to completely ignore the fact that it might be an adjustment, that it will be an adjustment especially after playing behind this team the way they defended the previous two seasons or three seasons. Oh, absolutely. And before we let you go, I had a quick one on Andre Vasilevsky. He was going to miss the first few months of the season uh, undergoing surgery on his back. Like, obviously, anytime anybody goes on, you know, has surgery, it's a bit of a concern. But for a goaltender going through a procedure like that, uh, 
is it a bit more like tricky in terms of projecting how he can be and when he comes back? Um, I mean, I've had that surgery set uh, and come back from it within a couple of months to play hockey. I'm not Andre Vasilevsky. I'm pretty sure he's in better shape. I'm pretty sure he's got a stronger core. He's actually got a core, so that's probably a start. Um, You know, they do tell you when you have it that the risk, if you don't sort of do the work and maintain it, is that you can start popping those discs right up the chain. Um, You know, obviously, whatever they cut out in that discectomy procedure, like however much of that fluid or material or jelly-like material they have to remove, there's a little instability in there, and that instability can be transferred up the chain. But for the most part, um, you know, guys that take care of it don't have recurring problems. I certainly haven't. It's been night and day, and like I said, I am no Andre Vasilevsky. This is the closest I'll ever be to Andre Vasilevsky is being able to say I had the same surgery. That said, I tend to just drop to my knees and fall on my face in goal. He gets a lot more contorted and twisted and athletic. Um, so it's a fair question. But it's not something I'm really worried about. When you like this guy's a physical freak, frankly. Um, I know coaches that have worked with him in Ottawa since he was 18, 19 years old when his agent used to, to bring him over. And his power, his body control, his ability to extend, his ability to access um, power and extension at end range of motion is just off the charts. And yeah, okay, maybe that puts a little extra stress on the body. And maybe he's going to have to not get himself into those positions quite as often. Um, but he's just, he's such a a physical specimen in the way he takes care of himself that I think this will probably just be a blip and yes the timeline you know could be as long as 10 weeks but if if I was a betting person and Vegas was taking odds on it I'd bet you he's ahead of that by a couple at least well I look forward to seeing when Andre Vasilevsky comes back and I can always say you know Kevin Woodley went through the exact same thing as Andre Vasilevsky did we share a scar beyond (laughs) the scar of being a goaltender (laughs) absolutely hey Kevin always great my friend I would look forward to seeing you here at the rink a bit later get here safely yes I will get there quickly safely I'll get there you'll get there all right thanks man that's Kevin Woodley in Gold Magazine and NHL.com great stuff as always and uh, Andre Vasilevsky that's that's an interesting one because I think a lot of people are quickly kind of writing off the Tampa Bay Lightning they're like oh you don't have Vasilevsky you know Mm -hmm. what's what's it going to be like and I'm always kind of pumping the brakes on the hate for I mean the doubt around uh, Tampa Bay Lightning I'm more concerned for the Lightning than I am Vasilevsky's long-term health Uh, Woodley mentioned how how well he takes care of himself and everything like that so I, I, I do think he'll come back to a certain standard uh, that we, we always see from Andre Vasilevsky but I, I, I'm, I'm somewhat uh, intrigued by what the Tampa Bay Lightning look like it, uh, come the start of the year now I know you were like hey they got some rest they're out in the first round good for them right. they finally got some rest uh, but you know, I still think that they'll be in a playoff spot but good for the Canucks if they're playing them early Yes. No, exactly. So you get them at that early spot, but as the year goes on, that's a team to really, really watch out for. All right. uh, A lot of great reaction on our text inbox, 650-650. The pregame show is going to start coming up just at the top of the hour. We'll get to the pregame roundtable and get you set for Canucks and Seattle Kraken. Now, we are out in the Valley, and we got a few text messages about this. I know it's been a very difficult time out here, especially with uh, what happened last month in Coquitlam, where Officer Rick O'Brien from the Pitt Meadows, from the Meadows RCMP, 
was senselessly murdered, and I know they had the regimental funeral today, which was, uh, I know, hit a lot of people very hard out in the valley. So our heart, our thoughts, and our hearts go out to those affected, and we hope that his family can find some peace after what happened. Yeah, certainly some reaction uh, from people uh, in the inbox still coming in uh, today. Uh, I, I live right there. Mm-hmm. It's a surreal day, and uh, certainly a lot of people in the community affected, not just. Uh, in Coquitlam, but uh, all throughout the Lower Mainland. Yeah, we appreciate those keeping us safe and putting their lives at the line on the line, and it's a reminder for the sacrifice that gets made and just all our thoughts and prayers with those people involved. All right, uh, a lot of great stuff is always here on the show. We're going to get to a lot more coming up. We have the pregame roundtable myself, Vic Nazar with Dan Riccio and Brendan Baxter getting you set for Canucks and Seattle Kraken. Keep your thoughts coming into our text inbox, 650-650. We'll tell you the lineup for tonight's game. Who's in, who's out? No Pedersen, no Hughes, no Miller, no Demko. But guys are fighting for spots. We'll get to that and more. It's Satin Bick right here on Sportsnet 650 and the Sportsnet Radio Network coming up next.